you're listening to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Ramsey Woodcock, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Ramsey specializes in antitrust law, among other things. And today we're going to talk about his, as always, provocative paper, The Efficient Cue and the Case Against dynamic pricing. Now, Ramsey, I'm guessing some of my listeners may not have a deep familiarity with antitrust law policy and, and theory. So maybe you could start by just explaining some of these terms in, in the title of your piece. For example, what is the efficient cue and, and what is dynamic pricing and, and why should we care about them? Uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, so, well, I'll start with just antitrust law uh, generally, uh, which is uh, um, a statute. Well, the main antitrust law is the Sherman Act, which was passed in 1890. Uh, and it's been referred to by the Supreme Court as a kind of economic constitution for the United States. Uh, what it does is it prohibits uh, monopolization uh, and collusive behavior as well. Uh, in very general terms that have been uh, held to leave it to the courts to decide uh, based on uh, the economic circumstances what um, what constitutes monopolization and what constitutes collusion. Uh, and in recent decades, the law oh, has a, been interpreted... A, a, a quick question. Has antitrust always, antitrust law or antitrust policy always been about economic consequences or have there historically been other versions of antitrust law? Uh, so it's it, it's ever since the first antitrust laws were passed, it's been sort of an open question exactly what they're supposed to do. Uh, the terms of the statute, the Sherman Act, are very general. I mean, what is monopolization exactly? Uh, and so it's always been a source of political controversy what what they're supposed to do exactly. For example, uh, I think it's pretty well established that the uh, political forces that gave birth to the original law were interested in in staving off excessive economic power, centralization of economic power in the in the hands of a few businesses or a few business owners. Um, but over the years, uh, interpretations have changed. Uh, starting in the 1970s or so, for example, uh, the consensus was that the antitrust laws were really about protecting consumers. So uh, if it happened to be the case that having a great big monopoly would make consumers better off because maybe it would be able to achieve uh, lower cost production and pass those benefits on to consumers through lower prices, uh, then starting in the 70s, it was thought that that was no, not a big problem. Uh, today, we've got a lot of pushback uh, coming both from the left and the right on that consensus. Uh, folks arguing that it's important uh, to use the antitrust laws to prevent, for example, great big tech giants like Google and Facebook uh, from dominating our, um, our online uh, markets. Okay. Okay. So, just to get a sense of where you're coming, we've got. It sounds like we've got these kind of, broadly speaking, two different perspectives on what antitrust law is for. One older perspective, saying it's about preventing bigness, as it were, and maybe a newer, more economic-based perspective, saying antitrust law is about you know making consumers better off. I'm wondering what per what perspective is your paper coming from? So, I I uh, I generally accept 
the consumer welfare um, approach that has been the consensus since the 1970s, not because I, I think it's necessarily the right one. In fact, I think it's important for us to worry about um, concentrations of economic power uh, in the hands of the few. And I think that there's, if there's sort of one one legal regime out there that's um, uh, well suited to dealing with that, it would be antitrust. Uh, but more because I find that there's actually a lot of um, reform that can be done simply by taking the consumer welfare standard seriously. There's a lot of ways in which uh, antitrust has not been protecting consumers, and that's uh, what this particular paper gets at a little bit. So dynamic pricing, which is the subject of this paper, is uh, the varying of price uh, over very short time frames. Uh, and it's something that's become very pervasive in our economy over the last 15 years or so. Uh, so, uh, for example, if you uh, were used, for example, uh, to paying uh, uh, to the thought that that the price uh, charged for access to something like Disney World doesn't change uh, uh, on a day-to-day basis, uh, that is no longer the case. Uh, Disney World an- announced a few years ago that it now will dynamically change the price of access uh, based on whether the crowds are larger or smaller. If you had gotten used to the notion that... Um, uh, the price of a Broadway show uh, is going to remain more or less constant. You know, once once tickets go on sale, that's no longer the case, right? Depending on when you you log in to buy your ticket, the the price is going to be uh, different. Uh, if you got used to the notion that a taxi fare is going to stay the same. Uh, 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 no matter when you hail your cab, that's no longer true if you're using Uber, uh, for example, which famously has. Um, uh, uh, in, adopted surge pricing, which results in in prices going sky high when you know at the end of a game or a major concert when everybody's trying to find a cab. So, uh, so the question is: Is there a role for antitrust as a legal regime that's dedicated towards protecting consumers uh, uh, to address this dynamic pricing issue? And is dynamic pricing actually a threat? Uh, uh, to consumers, or is it just good economics? So these are, this is the subject of the paper. Uh, Ramsey, why would courts engage in dynamic pricing, and why might we think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, so, so firms engage in dynamic pricing uh, for a number of reasons. One uh, is could be that their costs change. So, uh, you know, for example, the, the cost of delivering a product goes up, uh, price needs to go up in order for the firm to cover its costs. But that's not actually the main um, reason for which firms have been adopting dynamic pricing in recent years. What The reason they've been doing it in ye- recent years uh, is because we've got so much more data out there on consumers, and which means data on demand. Uh, firms know when more consumers are looking to buy. They know when uh, uh, they're wealthier and they're, they're able to pay more for products. And so they want to be able to vary price in order to extract the maximum amount of profit uh, from consumers. In fact, a pioneer of this practice is Amazon. Not all of us realize uh, that Amazon varies prices on uh, hundreds of thousands of goods hundreds of times a day uh, based on its sense of you know, whether consumers are buying at that particular moment uh, are willing to pay more. Okay, uh, let, let, let me get this straight here. How is what you're describing different from, from pi- price gouging? How is this, how is this legal? 
So, uh, so it's not actually different from price gouging, although price gouging happens in extreme circumstances in which we're more likely to view it as morally reprehensible. So price gouging is there's a hurricane on uh, and you go to your local supermarket to buy water and the, you know, buying a quart of water uh, now costs $100, right? That's uh, uh, price gouging. There's, and there's a, a good number of state laws that prohibit uh, that kind of behavior, particularly with respect to necessities. But as a general matter, matter for if you're going to Amazon to buy a textbook or something, there's no uh, specific statute out there that would prevent Amazon from charging uh, the maximum that it thinks that you're willing to pay. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just uh, good business or good capitalism, uh, uh, we might think. Where the problem arises is that in the past, firms didn't have all that much data on you. So when you walked in the door or walked in the virtual door uh, to buy online, they didn't know whether you could, you could, how much exactly you'd be willing to pay. With the rise of uh, uh, big data, uh, firms now are able, and, and algorithms that allow them to process this data, firms now have a much better picture of what consumers are willing to, to buy, uh, to pay for products. And that's what is allowing them to raise price uh, more efficiently. Why is that a problem? Well, what it means is that regardless of, of the prevailing market structure, regardless of whether you're dealing with a competitive market or a monopolized market, firms are able to use dynamic pricing today to extract more value from consumers than they ever were before. Uh, if you think that firms were able to earn sufficient profits to make the economy uh, run well, say, 15 or 20 years ago, then there's not really a good profit or efficiency story for why they should now need the additional wealth that they're able to extract from consumers uh, today using data-driven pricing. Uh, and so it may well be that this data-driven pricing represents a redistribution of wealth that isn't actually required to ensure that firms make enough money to, 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 to prosper and, and grow our economy. Uh, and that's, that's why it presents a serious challenge, I believe, to, to the prevailing antitrust regime. Okay, so let me, let me get this straight. Essentially, what dynamic pricing does is enable firms to capture an increasing percentage of the surplus associated with the sale of a good. And it sounds like the problem is that if antitrust law is about consumers, how should we feel about a practice that's effectively enabling businesses to internalize those positive externalities or those profits instead of, instead of consumers? Uh, well, we, we can think of antitrust law generally as guaranteeing consumers a certain uh, uh, size piece of the economic pie. What, it, what antitrust law has done with respect to monopolies is it, it ensures that markets don't become so concentrated, so monopolized by individual firms that the price level goes up and consumers are able to extract only a small part uh, uh, of, of the benefit of production for themselves with the rest through higher prices going to those firms. If that's what antitrust is doing, if it's guaranteeing consumers by through the deconcentration of markets and the promotion of competition of a fair share of the economic pie, then when technology comes along that allows firms to extract a larger share of that uh, pie for themselves for any given level of competition in the market, that's a real challenge to, to the, the sort of wealth distributive policy uh, uh, that's being promoted by antitrust through this consumer welfare standard. Uh, so the, the main challenge to making the argument uh, that antitrust should intervene here is that traditionally antitrust has been interested in uh, dealing in, in, in 
in guaranteeing a certain level of wealth to consumers through the promotion of competition. But what data-driven pricing is doing is it's extracting more wealth without necessarily changing the competitive dynamic in the market. Uh, and so antitrust needs to evolve uh, as the economic constitution of the United States that it is to deal with this threat to consumer welfare, uh, uh, even though or despite uh, the absence of a sort of direct link to competitive uh, uh, problems. Okay, so one more question before we go to the break. Uh, you also talk about the efficient queue. What is that? So, so the the main uh, uh, the main economic justification uh, for dynamic pricing is that sometimes firms are selling products that are in fixed supply or in limited supply, and they have an excessive number of consumers who want to come in and buy or would be able to buy if they were to charge a low price. And so they raise price in order to winnow down the number of consumers who are demanding the product. In a sense, it's a form of rationing. The higher price is rationing access to a good that's in limited supply. And think about Amazon selling a book. If demand for the book spikes, it can't just print up more copies uh, uh, in, in minutes. Uh, and so it has a problem where there's many consumers who want a book, but there's too few books out there. So Amazon will argue, well, we need to raise price in order to winnow down the number of demanders and decide really which of these consumers who want the book actually get access to it. Uh, the, uh, the justification for this, uh, uh, for using price in this rationing sense, has always been that there's no other low-cost way to decide who gets access. Uh, what, you know, one alternative would be to have consumers wait online, but that's a huge waste of time. We all hate waiting online because we'd rather be elsewhere doing other things. Uh, my argument is that in the, in the online age, in the Internet age, we don't have that problem anymore because we can line up virtually. It's you, you just log in to Amazon. You see if the product is available or sold out. If it's available, you buy. And if it's sold out, it's sold out. You don't spend any time waiting online. Maybe you waste a couple of seconds logging into Amazon to see whether or not the product is available. So the queue, the line, has now become efficient. Uh, and so we no longer have to rely on price as the sole low-cost mechanism for deciding who should get access to goods in fixed supply. Is there anything else that my listeners need to know in order to understand the argument in your paper? Uh, I think there is. The, so we're very used to thinking about the use of, um, of pricing as a way of equilibrating supply and demand. Uh, and so when you have a situation in which and, – and so the situation of um, limited supply that I was talking about uh, just before the break uh, is endemic to dynamic pricing – precisely because dynamic pricing can happen so fast. With computers, you can change prices uh, you know, uh, uh, in milliseconds, uh, and that means that our ability to change prices has far outstripped uh, our ability to change production levels. So if you think about Amazon selling a book, you, you can't print up new books at the speed with which Amazon can change the price. So once you're able to change prices a lot faster than you're able to change production, your price choices are always happening against a background of fixed supply. So if Amazon can change prices in milliseconds, and it's the number of books it has on hand in inventory uh, is fixed over a period of days or even weeks, that means when Amazon is deciding what prices to set within those day or, or week periods, it's operating in, in a situation in which its underlying supply is fixed. And so if it has a situation in which uh, 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 more consumers are demanding its books 
then it's uh, 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 then it has books available for sale. We're now in a situation in which uh, it's 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 able to use ration pricing use pricing to decide which consumers get access and which don't. So long as Amazon charges a price above the cost of producing the books, the question has nothing to do with efficiency or with whether or not Amazon has an incentive to produce books or sell books or or whether the economy is able to grow. The question exclusively is one of how do we ration access uh, to a good and fixed supply. So we're we're in this world uh, with with data-driven pricing of rationing. And the question becomes, what's the most efficient way to do it? Uh, now, obviously, pricing, it, the, sort of the key determinant of what is the most efficient way to, to grant access to things is you look for a method that will determine which consumers value the good the most. Uh, you want to find a proxy for determining what the, what good they'll, uh, the, which consumers value the good the highest. Traditionally, economics has said the consumer who's willing to pay the highest for the good is the consumer uh, uh, who values the good the most. The idea here is if you really care a lot about something, you're willing to pay more for it. Now, we all know as a sort of, uh, uh, you know, fundamental matter that that's not always true, right? Some people have more money, and so they're able to pay more for stuff that they don't necessarily value more than the person who's poor and simply can't pay more for it uh, uh, because they just don't have the money to pay for it. So we know that willingness to pay is an imperfect proxy for the level of value that consumers place on goods. Um, but we've, we've always felt that it was uh, the most efficient uh, way to ration access because you don't have to wait online at least. Uh, I, um, waiting online, though, is also another proxy for value, right? Uh, those who care most about a product uh, in theory, are going to try to show up earliest for it, right? So it's also a rough proxy for how much you value something. But very often, we end up online at the head of a line just by luck, or we happen to be in the right place at the right time. So just like willingness to pay, uh, the ability to get to the head of a queue is also an imperfect proxy for for value. Previously, we you know we said, hey, at least... With price, you don't have the additional waste associated with waiting online and wasting time uh, uh, that you could be spend, spending uh, engaging in other kinds of productive behavior. But that's that's really not true today in the Internet age where you don't actually physically have to be online. Uh, so if Amazon gets a situation in which demand is spiking for a book, what I argue is it what it should do, the consumer-friendly thing for it to do, would not be to raise price for that book. Uh, uh, in order to ration access to it. Instead, Amazon should let the book sell out. <laughs> Just let the book sell out. Right. Uh, and and, and uh, because uh, consumers don't have to wait online now in order to be there first in order to get the book before it sells out. All they have to do is log in and see if it's available or not. Or uh, you can set up a, a reservation system, a pre-order system, which plenty of uh, sellers still do. Uh, and that also requires a very small amount of expenditure of time on the part of the consumer, uh, and you're, you're, you're rationing with just as uh, effective uh, a mode uh, as you would through price. Uh, and I should add that this extends not just to um, uh, sort of the retail markets, but also to a lot of government, government initiatives of recent years. For example, a lot of commuter highways uh, have adopted uh, sort of fast lanes uh, in which uh, you know commuters who want to pay more get to go fat get to go on this sort of unclogged lane, and everybody else has to go on the clogged lane. That's a form of ration pricing. 
Uh, now, we might like it better because the money is being paid to the government, and presumably the government is using that uh, you know, to spend on social services and engage in redistribution. And so maybe it's good on that ground, but we have to come to terms with the fact that what's being done there is not any more efficient than if uh, the government had just decided to randomly ration access to the fast lane uh, 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 to people. You could wake up in the morning, press a button on an app, and find out whether you've been granted access to the fast lane or not. That would be equally efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's not an efficiency argument there for that. And the same thing also goes for congestion pricing. New York City, for example, has uh, been considering uh, charging for access uh, to New York City streets. Uh, Again, don't believe the arguments that you may hear that that's the efficient thing to do. It would be just as efficient, again, uh, uh, to ration access by random allocation uh, uh, as through price. That's really interesting. Um, And it strikes me that in some markets, producers already use waiting or lines instead of pricing in order to ration access, like, for example, luxury goods. Right. So when you sell tickets to a concert, people always get surprised. Like, why is the price so much lower than what people are willing to pay on the secondary market? And it seems like maybe what's happening is the person selling the ticket thinks that queuing is going to be a better way of determining how much the consumers want the ticket in the first place. Same with like pricey bourbon or fancy handbags or or something like that. Um, is, am, I, am I getting it right there? You're, you're exactly right. And it, you know, for example, Hamil- you know, the 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 smash uh, uh, hit Hamilton uh, musical has been grappling with this problem for quite a while because. Uh, you know, sort of automated, uh, you know, ticket bots were buying up the tickets and reselling them at exorbitant prices. And, uh, uh, you know, average ordinary consumers who wanted to see the show couldn't get access. And so to their credit, the, the Hamilton folks have been trying very hard to find ways to ensure that, um, that, that that doesn't happen and that people can get the tickets essentially by queuing virtually uh, rather than uh, based on price. Okay, so if I can... Right. If the concern with rationing by price instead of rationing by access is that some people don't have the resources to uh, purchase a good, even though they their use would be the best and highest they would, the use of the good, they would want the good the most. Uh, why is rationing by access a better way to ration than just giving poor people more money? That's a, that's an interesting question. So I I haven't. Um, so certainly, if you had sort of a radical redistribution of wealth, uh, you could have a lot more faith in uh, willingness to pay as being an accurate proxy for value, right? And that, in a way, that's what sort of textbook economics assumes that we're starting from a, 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 an initial position in which everybody basically has the same amount uh, of money, and so. Uh, if somebody's willing to pay more, it really does mean that they care more for that, not that they're uh, somebody who's simply richer and so that the value they place on money is lower uh, than than the value that others place on it. And so they're able to, to offer more for it. So uh, certainly uh, uh, redistribution of wealth uh, you know, would be another way to sort of deal with some of the issues that come up or some of the problems associated with price as a rationing mechanism. Unfortunately, we're, we're not in that world. Um, and uh, it, so, so it's important to, um, to look for other alternatives. So, so, so one thing I wanted to ask before we, we, we wrap up is it, it seems like there's a kind of fundamental tension between the 
factual argument that you're making and some of the insights introduced by economists like Friedrich Hayek and others about the role of the price mechanism and and efficiency. But what I'm taking away from this is that what you're saying is essentially, essentially Hayek was just making an empirical argument and it turns out that the facts on the ground have changed. Am I, am I getting that right? So... Uh, uh so sort of uh, you, you, Hayek and sort of standard um, economic theory, I, I think, is very compelling on the point that prices have to be – private firms have to be able to charge prices that are high enough to cover their costs, understood to include you know, whatever profit is necessary to make them willing to be in the market. Uh, and so the argument here is it's not that – uh, anybody who wants something, even if they can't, regardless of what price they're able to pay, should get access to it. Um, that doesn't work, right? I mean, somebody, if it costs uh, $10 uh, per book to publish a book, uh, then people who can only pay, afford to pay $5 for that book uh, and will pay only $5 for that book, if, 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 if we insist that they be allowed to buy, then the firm isn't going to have enough money to cover its costs, and it won't publish the book to begin with, and so we're worse off uh, overall. So the argument here is not um, that anybody who wants something should be able to pay whatever price they want or no price and get access to it. The argument is that it's very often the case that at the price that's required to ensure that production takes place, that publication actually happens, so $10 in this example, at a price of $10, there'll be more people who are, who are willing to pay that price and buy the book than there are books available. All right, and that can, that can certainly happen over short time frames uh, that take, uh, in which dynamic pricing takes place because, you know, think of Amazon. If more people want, you know, might have 20 books in inventory, and if more people want uh, the book than it has in inventory, it might have to wait two weeks to get more from the publisher. So within that period, the question is, from the group of people who are more than willing to pay the cost of production, including a reasonable profit, from that group of people, who should get access? What um, this is where sort of traditional economics goes wrong. It says, or or I think is now sort of no longer right. Uh, it says, well, the only way to deal with that is to further raise price, and if that means that Amazon makes a profit in the sense of getting more money than uh, the cost of production for each book, let's say it charges twenty, it can charge twenty dollars for access to the uh, to the to the to the twenty books, uh, making ten dollars profit on each. That profit. Uh, uh, is is no is not a profit that's necessary to cover the cost of production. So it's not necessary to ensure we have those books. Uh, it's exclusively a kind of collateral damage associated with the form, the method of rationing access to those books. And my argument is, if we want to benefit consumers, and that's what antitrust is charged with doing under the current in interpretation, uh, is protecting the, the wealth of consumers, if we're going to do that, then we need to ensure that firms do not use price to ration anymore if we have an equally efficient alternative available. Uh, and in that case, in this, in in the online world, that equally efficient alternative is selling out. It's allowing the good to sell out uh, uh, at the price that's equal to cost. Wow! So this is fascinating paper. I actually think it has a lot of really interesting implications for intellectual property law as well. In fact, it it really sounds like a big picture version of the utilitarian or, or economic theory of justification of intellectual property. Uh, in any case, I'm talking with uh, Professor Ramsey Woodcock of the University of Kentucky College of Law. This has been Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, also a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And uh, Ramsey, 
Jose, I just want to give you one chance before we end the segment. Uh, if you have any f- you know, final takeaways you want to leave with the audience. Uh, well, um, you just mentioned uh, these intersections with intellectual property law. Uh, one interesting intersection is uh, there's often an argument made against queuing as a rationing mechanism, which is that uh, if you, the market always undermines the queue. So if people, if people have to line up to get access, somebody's going to come in and buy their way to the head of the line using money. Right. Let's say in our example from congestion pricing, you wake up in the morning and the city of New York tells you that you get access to New York City streets today. Someone will come along and try to buy access to that uh, to to those streets uh, from you. And so there's this argument that the market undermines the queue. People don't realize, however, that the queue just as much undermines the market. Mm -hmm. So how do people get rich enough so that they can buy access to the head of the queue? Well, they were the first to patent a new invention. They were the first to find uh, some uh, you know, mining resource or raw material. They were the first to be in, in, in a market. That's all being at the head of the queue. <laughs> so which is it? Is it, uh, is it that the market comes before the line or the line comes before the market? That's not a question yeah. that is clear at all. Yeah, one of those chicken and egg problems we have so often in the law. Well, Ramsey, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, the first episode of Ipsa Dixit, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in our office in a bit. It's a pleasure to be here. Me too. <laughs>